Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season seven of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is episode 7-3, Crusaders and Ottomans. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. With the Byzantine Empire weakening and shrinking, the Ottomans begin conquering much of the Balkans. A Serbian Empire emerges and, like most Europeans, wants to stop Ottoman expansion in the Balkans. The Ottomans defeat a federation of Christian states at the Battle of Kosovo in 1389. This victory frightens the Western Europeans who proceed to call another crusade. And with that, let's continue our discussion of the Nikopol Crusade. The Nikopol Crusade, Part 2 In the late 1300s, Western and Eastern Europe united to launch a crusade against the Ottomans. The crusade had initially been called by King Sigismund of Hungary. He was joined by the Byzantines, which led Ottoman Sultan Bayezid I to put Constantinople under siege. Most of the Western crusaders came from France and Burgundy. But the Venetians, the English, and the Germans also joined in. In the east, Wallachians and Bulgarians joined the crusade along with the Hungarians and Byzantines. Some of the religious military orders also joined, such as the Teutonic Knights and the Knights Hospitallers. All the Ottomans had were themselves and their Serbian vassal, Prince Stefan Lazarevich. Furthermore, the Crusader navy blockaded the Dardanelles Strait between Europe and Anatolia. This meant Bayezid could not bring additional troops from Anatolia. Fortunately for the Ottomans, one of their most accomplished generals, Ghazi Evrenos Bey, made it across before the blockade. The Crusaders began arriving in Ottoman Bulgaria in the spring and summer of 1396 and made quick work of the first two Ottoman towns, Vidin and Oryahovo. By September 1396, the entire Crusader army, along with much of their fleet, had arrived at Nicopolis, an Ottoman town in northern Bulgaria. They expected Nicopolis to fall as easily as the first two towns, but the Ottoman garrison held strong. The Crusaders then decided to put the city under siege, hoping to starve them out. Having mustered all the troops he could in the Balkans, Sultan Bayezid's forces lifted the siege on Constantinople and headed towards Nicopolis to face the Crusaders. September 24, 1396 when the Crusaders received reports that Sultan Bayezid and an army of thousands were just a few miles south of camp, the French and the Burgundians were skeptical. The Ottoman forces they faced so far had not impressed them, and they were convinced Sultan Bayezid was a coward. They did not believe he was brave enough to show up, and even if he did, they were certain they could beat him. The Hungarians had fought the Ottomans before and knew otherwise. They knew Bayezid was no coward and that the Ottomans were excellent fighters. If anything, the Hungarians were surprised by how quickly the Ottomans mobilized. 
They were also concerned about the location of the Ottoman camp. According to their scouts, the Ottomans had camped at the top of a hill in a very defensible position. The Hungarians shared these reports with the other crusaders, but the French and Burgundians scoffed at them. Perhaps the Hungarians were afraid of the Ottomans, but the Western Europeans were not. There was one problem the crusaders had to resolve quickly. When they did go forth to face the Ottomans, all those prisoners they'd taken from Oriohovo would be left behind unguarded. The crusaders could not spare any men to watch over the prisoners, and they certainly could not just let them go. So they killed them. The crusaders killed hundreds of unarmed civilian prisoners because they did not know what else to do with them. And since the crusaders were too busy preparing for battle, they did not even bother to bury the dead prisoners. This lack of foresight would come back to haunt them. September 25th While the crusaders were slaughtering their civilian prisoners, Sultan Bayezid sent a message to Dogon Bey, the commander of the Nikopol Crusade. The sultan's message encouraged the commander to hold on a little longer as help was on the way. That night and the next morning, Bayezid prepared his forces for battle. He began by positioning his troops near the top of the hill. He organized his troops into the standard formation common for the time following Turkish military traditions. The archers were in the first ranks. Lightly armored, their job was to launch volleys into the oncoming enemy, wearing them down as they trudged uphill. Behind the archers were the Sepahi, the Ottoman heavy cavalry. Heavily armed and armored, the Sepahi were the most important element of the Ottoman army. A Sepahi rode into battle covered in mail and armor while carrying a sword, bow and arrows, axe, and a warhammer. The Sepahi were proficient in all these weapons even while riding on horseback. Then came the infantry in the center of the Ottoman formation. In this battle, the infantry were positioned behind several rows of sharpened wooden stakes. Just like the archers in the front ranks, the infantry were lightly armored and expected to wear down the enemy. The Akinci, or Ottoman light cavalry, were stationed in front of the wooden stakes. These were fast, lightly armored horse archers. Their sole purpose was to harass, disrupt, and cause confusion in the enemy ranks. Though they were primarily archers, the Akinci also carried swords and other weapons for close combat. Mixed in with the infantry were the elite Janissary units. These slave soldiers were noteworthy for their discipline and loyalty to the Sultan. Regular infantry units were little more than cannon fodder, but not the Janissaries. They could inflict serious harm on the enemy and were expected to die for their sultan. Finally, at the rear of the army, on the other side of the hill, out of sight of the crusaders, was Sultan Bayezid and the Kapikulu. The Kapikulu were the cavalry version of the Janissary and the sultan's personal guard. They were the last line of defense and even more ferocious than the Sepahi. Off to the side, in their own camp, was Prince Stefan Lazarevich and the Serbs. Sultan Bayezid held them in reserve, determined to use them only if absolutely necessary. 
The Attack of the French and the Burgundians It would be a mistake to assume the Crusaders did not have a plan. They certainly had an offensive plan and had spent all night arguing about it. King Sigismund and the Wallachians were familiar with the Ottoman battle style and knew what to expect. They suggested using their infantry to skirmish with the Ottoman archers, Akinci, and infantry. Just like the Ottoman infantry, the Crusader infantry was cannon fodder. They were basically peasants with swords. The Hungarians proposed using their infantry to absorb the brunt of the initial Ottoman attacks. This would weaken the Ottoman front ranks, making them easy targets for the Crusader heavy cavalry. Covered from head to toe in plate armor, there was nothing more terrifying than a European cavalry charge. The medieval version of a tank, the mounted knight could charge through the enemy ranks, scattering and slaying men left and right while barely taking any hits. The Hungarians knew this was the best strategy to defeat the Ottomans. But the French and the Burgundians would hear none of it. Once again, they scoffed at the Hungarians whom they considered a lower class of people. The idea of riding into battle behind Hungarian and Wallachian peasants was ludicrous. Besides, the Western Europeans did not believe these Ottomans were as tough as the Hungarians made them out to be. Nor did they believe the troop numbers their scouts had reported. They suspected King Sigismund proposed this plan so he could score an easy victory and grab all the glory. The Franco-Burgundians insisted on leading the initial charge and would not accept anything else. Despite his better judgment, King Sigismund relented and let them have their way. With that settled, the Crusaders formed up and began marching towards the Ottoman camp. The terrain was hilly and wooded, and it was slow going for most of the Crusaders. But not for the Franco-Burgundians. They were on horseback and moved faster than the other Crusaders who were mostly on foot. The Hungarians also had cavalry, but King Sigismund preferred to keep them with his infantry. The quicker pace of the Franco-Burgundians divided the Crusader army into two segments so they were the first ones to confront the Ottoman Akinci. Thinking the entire Ottoman force was made up of this light cavalry, the Franco-Burgundians charged forward, eager to get the fight started. But the Akinci were not there to fight. They shot a few arrows at the Crusaders, then scampered away into the woods. The Franco-Burgundians raced after them, eventually exiting the woods onto an open field at the bottom of a hill. Before them stood thousands upon thousands of Ottoman troops. As soon as they emerged from the woods, Ottoman archers began raining arrows down on them. But most of the arrows bounced off the crusaders' heavy armor and padding. Their horses were not so lucky. Realizing they could not pierce the crusader army, the Ottoman archers targeted the horses instead. This slowed the Franco-Burgundians down and took some of the wind out of their sails. But it did not stop them. They pushed up the hill towards the archers who eventually scattered before them. The Franco-Burgundians finally reached the wooden stakes which stood between them and the Ottoman infantry. The crusaders who were still on horseback dismounted and joined their comrades on foot. 
Together, they plowed through the sharpened stakes, some of them hacking away with their swords, while others wrenched them out of the ground with their bare hands. More annoyed by the archers and the stakes than anything else, the Franco-Burgundians took their wrath out on the Ottoman infantry. The infantry wore little armor and did not stand a chance against the metal-clad European warriors. The crusaders tore through the infantry ranks, slaughtering everything in their path. The Ottoman infantry that survived this onslaught fled to the surrounding hills. Having made easy work of the first two levels of Ottoman defenses, the older crusaders advised their men to rest and wait for the Hungarians to catch up. But the younger Franco-Burgundians were full of bloodlust and anxious for more action. They were getting closer to the main Ottoman camp and did not want to give them a chance to regroup. The young men shamed the older men for wanting to rest. The older crusaders finally relented and the Franco-Burgundians continued forward. They soon came face to face with the Ottoman Sapahis. The well-trained Sapahis encircled the Ottomans and closed in. The crusaders should have listened to the older men. After fighting uphill in the hot sun while wearing heavy metal armor and padding, they had run out of gas and the Hungarians were too far behind to be of any help. The Hungarians Sultan Bayezid was surprised by the Crusaders' progress. They had blown through his archers and infantry, completely ruining his battle plan. But this was where Ottoman discipline proved vital. Though the archers and infantry had been routed by the Franco-Burgundians, they did not flee the battlefield. Instead, they regrouped, linked up with the Akinci light horsemen, and got back into the fight. The only part of Bayezid's plan that had worked so far was the encirclement of the Franco-Burgundians by the Sapahis. In their haste, the Franco-Burgundians had left the Hungarians behind. Bayezid could see the Hungarians rushing up the hill to help their fellow crusaders. The sultan ordered his Akinci and infantry to reform their lines and keep the Hungarians from catching up with the Franco-Burgundians. Meanwhile, despite being surrounded, the Franco-Burgundians were putting up a good fight against the Sapahis. Frustrated, the sultan ordered his personal cavalry guard, the Kapikulu Sapahi, to join the fray. The Kapikulu rode down the hill at breakneck speed, crashing into the exhausted crusaders. The Franco-Burgundians finally broke. Overmatched, overextended, and overwhelmed, the crusader arrogance did them in. Some of them broke rank and fled into the woods. However, most of the crusaders stood firm and fought to the death. Within minutes, it was all over, and the surviving crusaders dropped their weapons and surrendered. Further down the hill, the Hungarian, Wallachian, Transylvanian, and German crusaders ran into the reformed Ottoman lines of infantry and Akinci. The Wallachians and Transylvanians decided to call it quits. Perhaps they'd heard of the devastation taking place uphill. Perhaps they realized this was a lost cause. Perhaps they were afraid the Ottomans would seek retribution later. Whatever the reason, the Wallachians and the Transylvanians who did not have a large military, could not risk losing troops in a meaningless battle. Sultan Bayezid observed the small Wallachian and Transylvanian army disengage and head for their ships on the river. But the Hungarians and the Germans pressed forward. 
The reformed Ottoman infantry and Akinci lines did their best to hold them back, but they were battered and bruised from their previous encounter with the Franco-Burgundians. Sultan Bayezid looked on in concern as the Hungarian crusaders pushed his troops to the breaking point. He ordered some of the Sepahi to assist them, but it was still not enough. Almost all of the Sultan's available troops had been used. Almost. He ordered the Serbs to join the fight. His Serbian vassal, Stefan Lazarevich, led his troops down the hill to attack the Hungarian right flank. This proved to be too much for the Hungarians. They could not fight the Ottomans in front of them and the Serbs to their right at the same time. Their lines crumbled and fell apart. King Sigismund and most of the high-ranking Hungarian nobles fled the battlefield. They rushed back to their boats on the Danube River and set sail for home. But the vast majority of the remaining Hungarian and German troops were not so lucky. Thousands were slaughtered on the battlefield. With the battle over, Sultan Bayezid made his way down the hill to inspect the crusader camp at Nikopol. He was shocked by what he found. First, he could not believe how luxurious the crusaders had been living while on campaign. Gold and silver utensils, beautiful carpets and tapestries, prostitutes and harlots. Certainly, the sultan's battlefield accommodations would have been better than the typical Ottoman soldier, but he still lived in a simple, animal-skin tent with only the basic necessities. The second thing that shocked Bayezid was the remains of the slaughtered prisoners. Such cruelty was shocking to the Ottomans. It just did not make any sense. Why kill hundreds of defenseless hostages who were not soldiers and posed no threat? The sultan boiled over with rage. He ordered all of the crusader prisoners executed. But after hundreds of them were killed, he grew sick of the carnage and rescinded his orders. The Ottomans set high ransoms for the remaining crusader prisoners. Their asking price was so high, France and Burgundy had to raise taxes to avoid bankruptcy. Those prisoners of war who could not afford the ransoms were sold into slavery and shipped off to Anatolia. However, some of these slaves accepted Islam, were freed, and became part of Ottoman society. There were also hundreds of crusaders who were neither killed in battle nor taken prisoner. Though they may have eluded the Ottomans, they faced almost certain death, especially if they were from Western Europe. To get back home, they had to cross nearly 300 miles of hostile, unfamiliar territory. If the cold weather did not kill them, then the wild animals would. Furthermore, many of these crusaders were injured and the locals refused to help them. The few who made it back to Germany or France or England were in such bad shape they died shortly afterwards. How the Ottomans Won The Nikopol Crusade was the last great European crusade against Islam. There were other crusades against the Ottomans and other Muslims, but none of them reached the scale of Nikopol. In later writings, European historians blamed each other for their defeat at Nikopol. The Eastern Europeans blamed the Franco-Burgundians for being arrogant and hasty. And the Western Europeans blamed the Hungarians and Wallachians for fleeing the battlefield. In reality, 
the difference between the Ottomans and the Crusaders had little to do with tactics, weapons, or courage. It all came down to discipline. The Europeans were excellent, well-trained fighters. Individually, they could be a formidable foe. But they were from several different nations and had never trained to fight as a cohesive unit. The Crusaders had not even planned on how to fall back, retreat, or regroup. The Ottomans were different. The Ottoman army functioned like a well-oiled machine. They trained and planned for every conceivable contingency. They knew exactly what to do if things went bad and the enemy broke through their ranks. The Ottoman troops knew where to rally, how to reorganize, and when to re-enter the fight. The Ottoman archers and infantry who'd been routed by the Crusaders had no trouble regrouping and getting back into the fight. But the Crusaders who'd been routed just kept on running. The Kingdom of Hungary was forced to make changes after this battle. Since the Hungarians would now have to face the Ottomans on their own, they got very serious about their military. They passed new laws increasing conscription. They raised taxes to pay for defensive improvements, and they hired thousands of foreign mercenaries. But Hungary also realized a more amicable relationship with the Ottomans was in their best interest. While the two states did not become friends, there was less antagonism between them for the next 30 years. The Battle of Ankara With the Ottoman victory at Nikopol, they completed their conquest of Bulgaria. But soon, they were faced with a new threat. In Central Asia, a new Muslim ruler had risen to power intent on resurrecting the fractured Mongol Empire. Timur, also known as Tamerlane in English, claimed to be a descendant of Genghis Khan. His ruthless conquests allowed him to expand his empire from Uzbekistan down to Persia and into Anatolia. And that's where he and the Ottomans came into conflict. The Ottomans did not yet control all of Anatolia. In fact, much of eastern Anatolia was controlled by smaller Beyliks loyal to either the Ottomans or to Timur. These Beyliks were caught between two Muslim superpowers. Those who did not like the Ottomans joined the Timurids, while many of Timur's opponents sought refuge with the Ottomans. In 1401, five years after Nicopol, Timur moved into eastern Anatolia, capturing Ottoman territory and vassals. After Nicopol, Bayezid had put Constantinople under siege again, but now he had no choice but to lift the siege and head east into Anatolia. The two forces clashed at Ankara in central Anatolia in 1402. The two armies were equal in numbers, but the Ottomans were at a disadvantage. First, they were reeling from two brutal conflicts, the Battle of Kosovo in 1389 and the Nikopol Crusade in 1396. Second, Bayezid had pushed his troops to the limit trying to catch up with Timur in Anatolia. Finally, Ottoman territory was much smaller than Timur's. The Ottomans controlled much of the Balkans and about half of Anatolia. Timur controlled Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Persia, parts of Iraq, Syria, the Caucasus, and roughly a quarter of Anatolia. 
Timur also had war elephants. Bayezid was supported by his Serbian vassal, Stefan Lazarevich, and his son, Suleiman Chelebi. Unfortunately for Bayezid, he also depended on thousands of Tartar mercenaries. During the heat of battle, these mercenaries turned against the Ottomans and switched sides to join Timur. Stefan Lazarevich and Suleiman Chelebi managed to escape with their lives, but Sultan Bayezid was captured. Bayezid died in captivity a few months later. With Bayezid's death, the Ottomans plunged into civil war as his sons fought each other for the throne. Stefan Lazarevich On his way back to Serbia, Stefan Lazarevich stopped at Constantinople. The Byzantine emperor gave him the title Despot of Serbia, which shielded him from European intervention. And now that the Ottomans were fighting each other, Stefan Lazarevich declared independence and ruled Serbia on his own. Stefan Lazarevich used this chaotic period to consolidate his power in the Balkans, bringing several warlords under his authority. He also supported economic and artistic development in Serbia, leading to a minor renaissance in Serbian culture. But soon, Stefan was drawn back into the Ottoman drama. He joined sides with Suleiman Chelebi, his ally at the Battle of Ankara. However, Suleiman was defeated by Mehmed Chelebi, the eventual winner of the Ottoman Civil War. Stefan wisely reconciled with the new Ottoman Sultan, Mehmed I, and continued to rule Serbia as a vassal. With the Civil War finally over, the Ottomans focused on rebuilding. During this period, they did very little military expansion for several years. This allowed Stefan Lazarevich to rule Serbia in peace until his death in 1427. But this led to a power vacuum in the Balkans. The Ottomans were still picking up the pieces and the Byzantines were still in terminal decline. During this period of chaos and anarchy, the Balkans fractured into more than 20 different states. Bulgaria alone split into three different states. The Ottoman Rebound Sultan Mehmed I died in 1421. He was succeeded by Murad II, who had to deal with chaos at every turn. First, he put Constantinople under siege for supporting his brother Mustafa against him. Then he had to lift the siege when a rebellion sprung up in Anatolia. And then he had to fight a re-energized kingdom of Hungary as it tried to take Serbia after Stefan Lazarevich's death. It took nearly two decades for things to finally settle down in the Balkans. Sultan Murad II fended off the Hungarians and Serbia remained a buffer between the two states. That is, until the Ottomans completely annexed Serbia in 1439. This annexation included parts of modern-day Bosnia. By the mid-1400s, the Ottoman government and military had been completely rebuilt. Some might even say they were stronger than ever before. The Ottomans borrowed a lot of their government and military traditions from the Mamluks of Syria and Egypt. The Mamluks, in turn, had borrowed much of their knowledge from the Ayyubids, which began with the great Muslim leader, Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. 
and Salahuddin had learned about governance, diplomacy, and warfare from the Fatimids and the Seljuks. This is all to say the revitalized Ottoman Empire was built on a long tradition of successful and powerful Muslim regimes. And they would need every bit of it as they turned their sights towards that perpetual thorn in their side, Constantinople. In the next episode, we will discuss the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome back. This is the Umayyad Caliphate presented by Islamic History Exclusive, and I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. To be 100% clear, this is actually season one of the Umayyad Caliphate. I have a feeling this series will run over many different seasons and several episodes just from the way things are going right now. But let's go ahead and get into it. Let's discuss the previous episode, or at least recap the previous episode, and then we'll get into the events of the year 75 AH. In the previous episode, we discussed how the new caliph, the the new Umayyad caliph, Abdul Malik, appointed Hajjaj ibn Yusuf as his governor of Medina. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf then proceeded to rebuild the Kaaba, doing away with the changes and the modifications that ibn Zubair had made previously. Hajjaj also persecuted the people of Medina, those who had supported ibn Zubair. Many of them were elderly companions or the children of companions. While Hajjaj was persecuting the people of Medina, the Khawarij were still very active in Iraq. Caliph Abdul Malik appointed his brother, Bishr ibn, ibn Marwan, as governor of Basra, and under Bishr's command or under Bishr's authority, two Iraqi armies went to fight the Azadika Khawarij. One of these armies was led by Muhalab, the commander that we first met back in the Ibn Zubair series. Muhalab led the army from Kufa, while another commander named Ibn Mihnaf led the army from Basra. And when that happened, most of the soldiers deserted and abandoned Muhalab and Ibn Mihnaf. 
And so with that, let's get into the events of this story. And let's begin by discussing how Hajjaj became the governor of Iraq. Well, first of all, after his brother Bishr died, Caliph Abdul Malik appointed Hajjaj as the governor of Iraq. Simple as that. So Hajjaj is made governor of Iraq, and this included Kufa and Basra, but it did not include Khurasan and Sijistan. Khurasan is basically Central Asia. I, t- I tend to include in Khurasan, the definition of Khurasan has changed over the years, and different uh, Islamic polities and states and governments had termed Khurasan as different parts of their realm or their region. But generally, I see Khurasan as Central Asia. That is, Central Asia exclusive of Iran, which is essentially Central Asia also, also exclusive of Pakistan. So all the other stands, basically, Turkmenistan, um, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and even a little bit of Afghanistan. All of those I kind of include in, in Khurasan, part of Central Asia. I don't really include Pakistan as part of that region. Pakistan, to me, is more part of the Indus Valley region, part of the Indian subcontinent. So I don't really include Pakistan in the Khurasan region. And again, Khurasan, the borders and and um understanding of where Khorasan lies has has changed over the centuries and it probably will continue to do so. Sijistan, by the way, another region that um, Hajjaj did not have any authority over. Sijistan is in, I believe, southeastern Iran, close to the border of Pakistan. I think it's called Sistan now. So there's a region in, in southeastern Iran called Sistan and Balochistan. I know there's also a part of Pakistan called Balochistan as well. So that region was outside of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's authority, at least in, in the time period, period that we're talking about right now. Anyway, Hajjaj arrives in Kufa in Ramadan 75 AH, 75 years after the Hijrah. And once he arrives, he gives a very famous speech. And we'll discuss that speech right now. The speech is very legendary in its eloquence and it displays... Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's determination, his fortitude, but also his cruelty, as we're going to go and discuss his speech in just a second, really get into the wording in just a moment. It is also important to understand that there are many variations of this speech. They didn't have recordings back then. So just like you have several variations of the Prophet's final khutbah, but the overall idea and the message of the khutbah is maintained in all of these different variations. I believe Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's speech is similar to that, where the exact words are probably not known, but the overall message is very clear from the different variations we have. 